We're starting to our Christmas series this weekend. Our Christmas series is called The Gift. And we want to uh, reconnect with the gift that God has given us uh, through Jesus. And so we're going to be uh, working our way through the first chapter of John's gospel. So if you want to turn in your Bible to uh, John chapter 1, that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, I've got a question for you as we get started. Uh, what is the most profound, significant gift that you've ever given? What's the most profound, significant gift that you've ever received? January 19, 1990 was a cold, uh, bitter winter day in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, it was in the evening, after work, after school, after dinner, we got in our little Datsun B210 and drove to Rosenblatt Stadium in the dark of the evening. Um, I had a gift that I had been anticipating giving for almost a couple of years. Uh, finally, it had come into my possession and I was ready to give it. The anticipation uh, was more than I could handle. I couldn't do it any longer. And I just had to give this gift. It was gonna be the most significant gift that I'd ever given. And so as we drove into Rosenblatt Stadium, kind of a frozen ice mixture on the ground. Again, it's a cold night. I get out of the car. I walked around to the passenger side. I opened the door and I invited the young lady there to step out into the cold night. And as she did, I got down on one knee and I opened up the gift that was in a little box and I asked her the most important question I'd ever asked anybody in my life, would you spend the rest of your life with me? And uh, to my amazement, I uh, continued to be amazed. She said, yes. And so I put that gift on her left ring finger uh, of her left hand. And, uh, and it fortunately still there to this day, 32 years later. Um, that was an amazing moment, and uh, it was an amazing, profound gift. In order to give that gift, I had gotten up on a cold winter morning. I think it was a Sunday morning uh, on her family farm to talk to her dad, a uh, large, rather imposing Norwegian farmer, and uh, I'd asked him if I could marry his youngest daughter. Um, have you ever been so excited about giving a gift or uh, receiving a gift that you couldn't sleep, that you were nervous? You know, um, this time of year, we start to think about giving gifts and receiving gifts. And uh, we do it out of an appreciation and a love for the people that are important in our lives. And we get excited about that. Um, and we should. And I think in part... I don't know the whole history of giving gifts, but I think in part, in our culture anyway, it's due to the fact that we do celebrate the most profound gift that has ever been given to the human race. And that came in the person of Jesus, the Son of God. And so this time of year, as we move into Christmas to celebrate all that God has done for us, I think it's important we reconnect to this most important gift. And so in John's gospel, he's going to reveal to us and unpack for us once again this gift and who it is that was given to us. The first thing we learn in the first couple of verses of John's gospel in the first chapter is that the gift that was given to us 
in the person of Jesus. The gift is eternal. Would you follow along as I read the first two verses of John chapter 1? In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. The first two words, in the beginning, John uses are a reference back to the first couple of words in the whole of the Bible. Uh, Moses, it was through Moses that the Holy Spirit wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books in the Old Testament. The first one being the book of Genesis, which gives the account of the creation of all the universe. And the first words in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before the foundations of the world were laid down, before the universe came into existence, before any living thing had breath, the word was there. John is using metaphoric language to describe this gift to us. He uses a word that in Greek is the word logos. Logos is the word for word, right? And in Greek, this was a common word. It had a couple of potential meanings. One was speaking. Another was the message. Another could be, it it referred to words. So it has a meaning in Greek. And the meaning, as John uses it, has a connection to that meaning in Greek. However, he's going to give it an altogether different meaning. Definition, this word in Hellenistic culture, the uh, culture that Rome was fomenting and developing and building in the world, this word logos had significant larger meaning even within this culture. It, It was beginning to be used to describe the ordered universe and how things worked um, in at a larger scale within the human condition. Thinkers Philosophers were using the word logos uh, in their description of these things. But John is a Jewish man. He comes from Jewish Hebrew culture. And the word logos or the word word has an altogether different history, etymology, when it comes through Jewish culture. What is it that he was referring to? What's the meaning behind this word as he uses it to describe this gift that's been given to us. Well, it goes back all the way into the Old Testament, even into the book of Genesis in the creation account. We see that God speaks in the book of Genesis. And in the beginning, when he speaks, things come into being. Something is created out of nothing. Um, and so this language, this use of the word is found all the way back in Genesis. 12 times in chapter one, God speaks. When he speaks, something is created or he blesses the creation to procreate, to reproduce. And so this is the nature and the power of the word of God. The Latin ex nihilio refers to something coming out of nothing. Much of the world, even in Jesus' time, did not believe this account 
of creation, the way in which we came into being. But the Bible makes it clear that it was through the word of God, the breath of God, that the universe came to be. In Psalm 33, verse 6, the psalmist says, The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word, and all the stars were born. The power of God through the word of God. The logos, the breath of God, the words of God contain the power to bring life into existence. We also see through the Abrahamic covenant as God comes to Abraham and establishes an agreement between him and God and he's going to fulfill promises to Abraham. He's going to give him a land. He's going to make him into a people and he's going to bless the world through him. These truths, this covenant is spoken. It's through the words of God, the breath of God, that this covenant is put in place. When Moses is on the top of Mount Sinai, as God calls him there to meet with him, and he delivers to him the Ten Commandments, the commands which would be the basis for the way that Hebrew people were to live in honoring God, respecting God, and working out their salvation, this was spoken to Moses. Through the word of God, through the breath of God, the commands of God are given. When the prophets in the Old Testament came to speak to the nation of Israel, they spoke God's words. In other words, God spoke through them is the essence we get in the scriptures. This word logos, the word has all of these connections through the ancient Hebrew uh, uh, history. God speaks and his presence and power are experienced. Psalm 17, verse four. I have followed your commands, your words, your decrees. I have followed your commands, the psalmist says, which keep me from following cruel and evil people. There's a protection that I experience through the words of God. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. God's word brings illumination to his life. In this passage, John chapter one, the specific meaning that John is going to ascribe to this word logos is, is different and he gives some very specific definition to this word. Not just what he's referring to, but who he's referring to here. The first thing he says, the first statement of truth about the word is he says the word was with God. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The logos was in company with God. And so there's a connection, a relationship, uh, um, a sense of being that this logos, this word that John's referring to, he was with God in the beginning. Um, the last, uh, then the last statement that he makes is the Logos was God. The Logos already existed. The Logos was with God, in company with God. And then finally, the Logos was God, equal with God. In Genesis, we see a sense of plurality amidst singularity. The nation of Israel was taught that the Lord your God is one. 
monotheistic. There is one God that you worship. And yet in the book of Genesis, they also saw there was plurality amongst the singularity of God. Genesis 1.26 says, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They had the concept of a Godhead, though there was oneness, right? And so they didn't understand completely the meaning behind God. It isn't until the New Testament when we see at Jesus' baptism, right? The Father speaks, the Holy Spirit ascends like a dove, and then Jesus the Son, all three together in one place at one time expressed that we gain an understanding of who this one God really is. The Logos, John says, the Word is God. There's an eternal perspective that Jesus has. As he came to earth, as he took on human form, he took on a body, he became human for us so he could minister to us, reveal to us who God is. Jesus has that eternal perspective. He existed before the beginning. Implication is he always existed. He has a perspective that you and I need. We need to walk with an eternal God. We live in a temporal world governed by time and space. Things happen to us that we don't know are coming. We get up in the morning and we face obstacles. We face issues, complexity, problems, troubles. They come upon us oftentimes out of nowhere and with complete surprise. And yet the one, right, the logos, the word, he already knows. You can trust him. You can trust this gift that God has given to us. To anyone who received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The second thing we see in this passage, the second attribute that John gives to the word to help us understand who it is he's talking about is that this gift gives life. Second, first principle, the gift is eternal. The second principle, the gift gives life. Let's continue reading John chapter one and verse two. John goes on to say, God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. Verse four, the word gave life to everything that was created. The logos, the word was the one who created. He spoke and the world came to be. Our origins are found in him. In Jesus is the creative genius of God. It's expressed through him. And it was in the beginning of time. Jesus is the one who's the creator. He envisioned you. In his mind and in his heart, he invented and conceived of you. He started a world that guaranteed that you would become a part of it, that you would arrive. And it is in, through, uh, it is in and through the creative genius of God that God reveals himself to us. 
Romans chapter 1, verse 20. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing him. The logos, the word, gives life to everything. You know, in the, throughout church history, Jesus is referred to as the great physician, the great healer. It's really due to the fact that when he was here and in his ministry, he spent so much time healing physical infirmities. Certainly Jesus traveled the countryside, he spoke, he taught, but much of his work was healing physical issues. In fact, certain areas and regions that he spent time in, most of his time was spent just touching and healing the physical body. The reason, I think in part, that this was so much a part of Jesus' ministry is that he created our bodies. He created us. And so he knows how to restore, how to fix, how to make things right. Jesus did that in part to demonstrate the real healing he wanted to bring, he was capable of. God loves to uh, heal the physical body, and we certainly see that throughout Scripture, throughout time. Some of us have probably experienced that. But there's a more important healing and restoration that Jesus wants to bring to us and give to us. And that healing has to do with the deeper issues inside of us. Though we are physical, and it's an important part of who we are, God created our physical bodies. He created a physical world. And yet we have within us a spiritual component as well. We are spiritual beings, not just physical. And we have a great need spiritually to be connected to the God that created us. There is a brokenness within us, a fragmenting and a fracturing of the human soul. And it's because in the beginning, Adam and Eve, the first humans, made the first decision to disobey God, to break his decrees and to do what they wanted. But of course, each one of us has done the same. And so we all find ourselves in a place of spiritual brokenness. Jesus really came to restore that relationship with God and to bring healing to the spiritual, um, to our spirits and our souls. In John chapter 6, Jesus is interacting with some folks who were coming to him with questions. They wanted things from him. He's just coming off uh, performing a tremendous miracle in feeding 5,000. It's called the feeding of the 5,000. It was probably more like 15,000 because it's just referring to the men that were there, 5,000. But he uh, had taken some loaves and some fishes, uh, just a few, and he'd multiplied them and fed thousands and thousands of people. And they were all enamored by Jesus' ability to meet their physical needs. And they wanted this. And so the next day, some of them pursue him and they find him and they're, they're kind of wanting more of the same. And Jesus reacts to their desire for physical sustenance by challenging them with what they really should be coming to him for. He's like, listen, I have much more to offer you. I've got something far more profound than just some food. I can give you real water. I can give you real bread. 
He refers metaphorically to these physical needs, but he says, I can meet a deeper spiritual need. In John chapter 3, or excuse me, verse 6 and verse 35, he says it this way. In response to their questioning, Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty Sometimes I wonder, and I don't know about you, but am I really discovering the life that Jesus came to offer me? Are we really living that out? Or are we settling for something less? Are we settling for the physical needs that we need met? Are we going to Jesus to to get some encouragement, to get uh, some good instruction at times? But are we really getting the life that he offered. John makes it clear that Jesus came to ensure that we had life and to offer us life in the fullest sense. And yet sometimes I wonder, are we really pressing into Jesus for that life? Are we really sticking with him and going to him for that deeper need to be met? Or are we settling for the surface issues? Do you find yourself at times still thirsty, still hungry, down deep, so much so that you find yourself maybe obsessively working or doing, eating, working out, striving. I think some of that behavior, which probably at times we all reflect, is a reflection of that deeper need that Augustine called a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And it is only through a relationship with God It's only in coming to Jesus for those deeper needs to be met, that deeper healing to take place that we really can have the deepest needs of our souls met. The last thing that we see in these first few verses of John's gospel regarding this gift is that the gift gives illumination. Let's read the second half of verse 4 and verse 5. He goes on to describe the logos, the word. He says, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. The basic meaning here is this life that Jesus came to offer. It is in and through this life that light is brought to us. The assumption of the text is that we live in darkness and that we don't have the light we need to really have the illumination to live. And yet Jesus came and his life, his very existence was meant to bring that illumination. You know, this reflects John's wording here and and really what he's pressing into is certainly to reveal uh, uh, to us the truths about Jesus, but it's also to combat what would become one of the greatest heresies that afflicted the early church. There was a belief system called Gnosticism. Perhaps you've heard of it before. Um, It was something that even these early New Testament writers were beginning to battle with. Very prolific in Hellenistic culture. Gnosticism predates Jesus. It was an ancient belief system, kind of philosophy with some religion. It explained the plight of the human race. It believed in a dualistic approach to reality, that there were two basic powers, dark, a dark power and a light power, evil and good. 
You think, well, that's ancient, that's old, that doesn't exist anymore. The first movie that I ever went to see was a little film called Star Wars. It kind of became a big thing. Uh, That movie presents dualism as the uh, answer to the human condition, to the issues within the universe. We all see that evil exists. At times we feel we get a sense of good. And dualism answers that question to equal powers, good and evil, the yin and the yang. And yet John, in presenting the truth of Jesus, combats the heresy that began to infiltrate the church. You know, um, there were some gospels written by Gnostic leaders and teachers who glommed themselves on to Jesus and to the Christian movement. They saw within it uh, uh, something uh, that was happening, that was taking over the culture, it was growing, and so they wanted to be a part of it, but they brought their heresy and their philosophy into it, and they interpreted Jesus through it. The Gnostic Gospels, made famous by Dan Brown in the book become movie, The Da Vinci Code, years ago now, but the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Philip, kind of resurfaced, and some ideas as to why they were eliminated from the canon, right, from the Bible, which of course is preposterous, ridiculous, because they have no foundation in reality. They were written by individuals that lived hundreds of years after Jesus. They didn't even know him, and yet they're writing these fanciful stories, these epics, made up. And if you understand Gnosticism, um, then you understand where they were coming from and what they were trying to do. Gnosticism believed that good existed in the form of light particles that made their way into the lives of just a few people. So a select few in a very deterministic, fatalistic view of the universe possessed this goodness, this light. And they had to, through secret knowledge, discover how to get that light to come out of their lives and permeate the world and make a difference in the world against evil. John combats those heresies, which again, the church fought with for hundreds of years when he presents this truth about Jesus. His life was the light of all mankind. Not just a select few, not through just secret knowledge, but through the person of Jesus, illumination is brought into the universe. The human condition is changed and transformed by the one who cannot be overcome by the darkness. The confidence that John presents in the light, the righteous goodness of God dominating and ultimately defeating the darkness, the evil, is the truth of the gospel. I want to illustrate real quick at the end of this message why I think the illumination, the truth, the light that Jesus brought into the world that he wants to give to us, he wants to um, impress upon us, and not just so that we know it up here, but so that we live it out in our lives. And I've been working out something over the last few months, uh, something that I think is very difficult for me, and I see a lot of us struggle with it. So I know it's a very relevant issue. And, and yet Jesus demonstrated 
through his life, the illumination he brings, how to give us that real life that can transcend this particular struggle. And so I've got a little chart I want to throw up here on the screen. I want to read this verse, Ephesians 4, verse 15. The apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus these words. He says, instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He's like truth and love. So Jesus, of course, modeled this. If you recall any of the interactions Jesus had with people, he spoke 100% truth to them. In fact, everything Jesus said was truth because he is truth. He spoke the truth. He did it motivated by love. Now, Jesus also spoke in love communicated love because Jesus didn't just believe in love. He didn't just value love, but he is love. Jesus spoke the truth in love. Now, if you can imagine underneath truth and love there, especially underneath truth, oftentimes what Jesus was addressing and speaking truth was some bad behavior. Um, I know you don't, but the person you're sitting next to may struggle a little bit at times with some bad behavior. Bad behavior is that action that others do towards us that, that hurts a little bit. It's offensive to us. Uh, it's a problem. And so we have a tendency because our sin nature to dabble in some bad behavior from time to time. And Jesus would address it with the individuals he came in contact with. But he did it out of love. And so when he spoke truth to the bad behavior out of love, it brought about awareness. The individual could receive that truth and become aware of their behavior and see it, some illumination, if you will, and that could lead to change. They didn't all choose to change, but some of them did. Our problem is that bad behavior has a tendency to offend us. You know what I'm talking about? Bad behavior in others has a tendency to offend us. With offense, if we don't, uh, if we don't do anything with it, it typically turns into hurt, which can result in anger. Um, from time to time, in my 32-year-long marriage, I might exhibit some bad behavior towards my wife. doesn't happen very often. I know you find it hard to believe, but it does happen from time to time. Here's the thing. If my lovely bride which almost always does this the right way, but if she doesn't, and I catch her on a weak moment and she gets hurt by my bad behavior and gets angry, and I know you can't imagine her angry, but it can happen. Um, and so that anger, she'll speak truth to me, okay? And it is truth, but it's coming from anger. What happens is I have a tendency to have a defensive response. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, but, um, but that's typically reaction we get when truth is spoken out of anger and hurt. But Jesus commands us to do this altogether differently. He commands us to forgive. Now, why does Jesus command us to forgive? Why does he even say, if you want God's forgiveness, you're going to forgive others? No ifs, ands, or buts, right? No excuses, no wiggling out of it. Doesn't matter how many times they do the same thing to you. It doesn't matter. You have no excuses. You're going to forgive. Commanded. Jesus. <laughs> Come on, man. That's really hard. I don't really feel like doing that. that. That's opposite of what everything in me tells me to do. Why are you pushing me so hard? Why are you making my forgiveness contingent upon it? Well, it's because if I will obey him and forgive, then I'm able to return to a place of love as being my motivation. 
Now, I assure you that I love my wife and she loves me. We do not want to hurt each other. If we practice forgiveness, we can be restored in our motivation to love. And then we can speak the truth again in a way that can bring about awareness and change. Could you use some of this in your life? (laughs) I mean, can you see how the illumination of the truth of Jesus offers life to us? Instead of being caught in anger and hurt, which typically represents in the Bible evil and darkness, we're able to step out of that back into the light and be forces for good in the world. We can represent the heart of God. We can help each other grow. I think that the truth that Jesus uh, brought into the world through his life is so relevant, is so practical, is so real. And I want to grab onto it. And do you know that it's a battle for me to forgive again and again and again? It's a battle. And yet when I do, I find the life that Jesus is offering me. The Logos, the Word who became flesh. He loves you, cares for you, sacrificed everything so that you could have life, so that you could be restored spiritually, made right with God, to live for him and to live in him and to understand who it is that you really were created to be. Sometimes we need to hear the words of God personalized, a message as though it's from him to us personally. I found such a uh, message some time ago, and I think it beautifully states and presents the heart of God for you and for me. Here's how it goes. God is speaking to you. My precious child, he says, I'm in control. I am sovereign. I'm able to make things happen the way I want them to go. Yes, I allow you to make your own choices. And I know you don't fully understand how uh, these ideas can operate side by side, but I'm able to work within and around the choices you make to cause my ultimate purposes to succeed. For this, you must Trust me. Ask me about your choices and plans. My wisdom is yours if you'll ask. I want you to cooperate with my plans. When the people around you don't do that, be assured I am still in control. I will fulfill my plan. Their choices are their own, but I am still in control. Trust me. I will use it for your good. Lovingly, your heavenly Father, the King of kings. Jesus, the Word, the Eternal One, the One who brings life one who illuminates our existence. Trust him. Walk with him. I don't know what you're facing right now, but I know you're facing some troubles. 
I know you're facing some difficult things, right? It's a heavy, oppressive time on this earth. And yet Jesus, the Logos, the one, he hasn't left. He's here in power and he's accessible to you and me. As we end our service, we want to celebrate a sacred ordinance that was given to the church by Jesus. And that is the Lord's Supper or communion. In the city of Corinth, the Apostle Paul had established a church. It was a bit of a rough community. The Corinthians were not the most winsome people at following Jesus. At times, their bad behavior got really bad. When it came to the Lord's Supper, it had gotten so contentious that instead of coming together to celebrate Jesus in a worthy manner, they were kind of having a party. Uh, After church, they would gather together and the people that were wealthy would bring a lot of food, a lot of wine. They would eat too much and get drunk. And then the poorer folks didn't have anything to eat and it was chaos. And Paul said, I love you guys. God bless you, but you're out of order here. It's got out of line. And so he reestablished for them in 1 Corinthians 11 what this was all about. He says, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it, then broke it in pieces and said this, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this uh, to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. He goes on to encourage them not to take the Lord's Supper or communion in an unworthy manner. As a kid growing up in churches, oftentimes with my dad as the pastor, uh, he would encourage us. to reflect on our lives and let the Holy Spirit search us, you know, and say, hey, is there something in me that I need to confess, I need to fix? Man, I wasn't planning on that. <clears throat> so, um, so this is what he impressed on us and taught me this practice. I just want to encourage us today before we take communion to let the Holy Spirit in, ask him uh, to search us and just sift through and if there's something that we need to confess and repent of, that he bring it to mind. So good. <clears throat> Let me pray for us. God, we just thank you for the gift you gave us, the sacrifice you made on our behalf, the way you love us and care for us and want to bring healing to our lives. God, we, we fall short a lot. We, uh, we do our own thing. We go our own way. So right now, we pause before we come to this sacred sacrament your body and your blood we want to take it in a worthy manner so would you help us 
as David said in Psalm 139, just examine our heart and show us if there's any wicked way in us. Help us to see it, to acknowledge it, to confess it to you. We receive your forgiveness and healing. And we come to this communion table with thanksgiving in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name.